0: Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Today we are sitting down with Dr. William H. Thieson. Atlantic Area Historian for the United States Coast Guard. And we're going to be talking about the United States Coast Guard and World War I. But first, tell us a little bit about the origins of the Coast Guard. When and why was it created? And was it a military service from the very start?
1: So the Coast Guard was founded, uh, we claim, uh, August 4, 1790 is our birthday. Uh, And our founder was Alexander Hamilton. He's the one who Uh, devised a system of uh, cutters. The fleet originally was 10 to match the number of major seaports on the East Coast. And uh, each cutter was responsible for law enforcement. You'll hear that a lot with the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard was originally a law enforcement agency and continues to be today, even though it's a hybrid uh, of a military agency as well. Um, So basically, um, the only form of revenue for the New Republic was um, tariffs. And so the Coast Guard, uh, this is import-export tariffs, Coast Guard was responsible in its ancestor agency of the Revenue Cutter Service for ensuring there was no smuggling, so it was interdicting uh, illegal goods, as well as ensuring that these tariff laws were enforced. So um, whenever the Revenue Cutter Service raised its flag, which is the Coast Guard ensign, which is used today, Uh, it was officially enabled to stop any vessel on the high seas or in harbors, as well as to, um, if those vessels didn't stop when signaled by the revenue cutter, uh, they would be fired upon, and the Coast Guard had legal jurisdiction to um, bring uh, ships to heave to so they could be inspected and their cargoes could be inspected. So that was the original uh, reason for the first 10 cutters on the East Coast in 1790. And since then, the service has evolved. And that's putting it mildly because it has merged with other uh, maritime agencies in the U.S. And its, uh, its form has morphed from being a civilian agency up until 1915 into what is officially a military agency, not housed in the Pentagon, but under DHS.
0: Okay, so when does it become known as the United States Coast Guard?
1: The modern form of the U.S. Coast Guard uh, began in January 1915. And the reason that the Coast Guard uh, was formed, the modern version was formed in 1915 out of the Revenue Cutter Service, was World War I. World War I, as you likely know, began in 1914, and the U.S. Uh, joined the fight in April of 1917. So there were three years there between when the, the war began in Europe and where, when the U.S. joined the, uh, the fight. And during that time, it was deemed important, if not logical, to turn what was the Revenue Cutter Service into the United States Coast Guard, the new military uh, agency which during wartime would serve as a branch of the U.S. Navy.
0: Now, what we know is that even though the United States was officially committed to neutrality at the start of the war in 1914, by 1916, the U.S. Army and U.S. Navy are preparing for defense and for possible participation in the war. Is the Coast Guard doing the same sort of thing?
1: Just to digress quickly, uh, when I mentioned that uh, U.S. Coast Guard became a uh, official military agency in 1915, it did so because it was formed out of two prior ancestor agencies. One is the Revenue Cutter Service, which I mentioned, and that is considered our core ancestor agency. It was the one around which everything else was merged. But the other agency that uh, was mer- uh, merged with it was the Life Saving Service Uh, in 1915. So those two were were combined to form the military agency of the U.S. Coast Guard. And uh, so as a result, the uh, the new Coast Guard actually did its um, mission both from shore as well as on the high seas. Both agencies were involved in uh, humanitarian uh, response, uh, saving life and property at sea, whether they came ashore or was still on the high seas. So when the time came to uh, mobilize for World War I, the um, Coast Guard uh, in 1915 began to make mobilization plans with the Navy. And uh, so they, they established something called Plan One, and that is the mobilization plan of the uh, Coast Guard to merge with the Navy. And so uh, in April of 1917, when uh, we officially entered the war and war is declared against Germany, this Plan 1 is broadcast to uh, units of the U.S. Coast Guard that they are to um, shift their command from uh, their Coast Guard, un- uh, Coast Guard uh, district commands to the Navy. Okay. So uh, the broadcast was put out um, on April 6, 1917 by Coast Guard headquarters, and the, uh, all it was was a transmission stating Plan 1, Acknowledge. Okay. And by the end of the day, on April 6th, the uh, Coast Guard units that had received that communication had communicated with their local Navy commands to uh, organize and coordinate their operations with U.S. Navy Command.
0: Is it a very smooth transfer to the Navy? Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how the services manage personnel, supplies, maintenance, promotions, things like that?
1: Well, back in those days, things were small. The uh, the service only had about 4,500 enlisted, about 225 officers. Uh, Bureaucracy was uh, miniature compared to what it is today. So planning and mobilization would be probably considered disorganized by today's standards, but by the standards of the day, they probably were actually pretty advanced. The Plan 1 mobilization had actually been worked out between the Navy and the Coast Guard for months before the war was declared. And so all they really had to do was to – This Plan 1 was basically a a document of about two dozen pages. Every unit in the Coast Guard had a copy. And all they had to do was – and I'm sure most of them had reviewed that mobilization plan well before the uh, actual Plan 1 acknowledged transmission took place. Let's just say that the transition that you're asking about was as smooth as it could have been for contemporary standards. By today's standards, it might have been considered primitive, but we have a much larger agency with many more layers of uh, planning and exercises and all kinds of preparations that they never even thought of back in those days.
0: I was doing a little bit of reading about promotions being somewhat difficult for guys in the Coast Guard initially,
1: there weren't a lot of opportunities for promotion in the Coast Guard as there were in the Navy, for example. And as a result, there was a lot of um, interest. Um, there's always been a, a, an underlying interest in transferring the Coast Guard into the Navy to become a branch of the Navy permanently, not just during wartime as it is today. And part of that is just because there's more opportunities for promotion, more opportunities for uh, commands, things of that nature. It's always been resisted Uh, when that took place after the war, and there was an interest in blending the two permanently. um, It it was uh, fortunately uh, resisted and didn't take place. But that's happened um, several times throughout the history of the service. And you just have to uh, think about the size of the Coast Guard compared to the Navy at that time, when you only have about 5,000 personnel altogether in the Coast Guard compared to whatever the size of the Navy was at that point. Uh, there just wasn't as much opportunity for, uh, for officers and enlisted people. And you also have to remember that back in those days for our enlisted folks, uh, you know, today we have advancement all the way from a non-rate up to a mass chief petty officer, and then you can go into the warrant officer ranks or even into the officer ranks. So there was plenty of opportunity today to um, rise through the ranks, literally. I mean, we've had uh, admirals that started out as enlisted members, but back in uh, World War I, that would be totally unheard of. Most enlisted people served out their time not even making a uh, chief petty officer because that uh, rank, enlisted rank, did not exist in the Coast Guard in World War I. Uh, you couldn't become a chief petty officer until the uh, early 1920s, and you couldn't become um, a senior or master chief petty officer until after World War II. So advancement in the enlisted ranks was unheard of. Um, you could become a first class, and that's what you'd retire as back in those days. And as far as officers are concerned, well, we really didn't even have flag officers in the Coast Guard uh, to speak of until well, 1915. We had uh, our first commandant, but he was a captain. And we didn't really have our first admiral commandant um, until after World War One. So like I said, there just wasn't a lot of opportunities in the Coast Guard for promotion or advancement.
0: You mentioned that the Coast Guard is about 5,000 people when the war starts. Correct. Was that sufficient, or was there a big drive during World War I to recruit?
1: Uh, there was a drive to recruit more people, especially um, to get more service members out uh, fighting the, the war. Um, so, for example, we had our first women in uniform. In World War One, not many, but uh, they filled basically clerical roles at headquarters to uh, free up more manpower for the war effort. Uh, We had what they call yeomanettes. You're probably familiar with that term. It's uh, women, enlisted women, who worked uh, basically at headquarters um, doing clerical work. However, we did also have our first enlisted uh, female electrician's mate, and she was the first one to officially don a uniform, female in uh, in the Coast Guard. And she's actually becoming a namesake for one of our new fast response cutters.
0: Oh, wow. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah, very proud of her. But um, there was this uh, interest, especially at headquarters, to try to fill as many jobs with um, civilians as possible, as opposed to using active duty personnel to do those jobs.
0: Do you know what the size of the Coast Guard was by the end of the war? Um.
1: I think it had grown uh, probably in the hundreds at that point. Uh, I wouldn't say that it would have expanded by the thousands. If you look at prohibition, which uh, obviously occurred right after the war, uh, the enlisted numbers at at that point were about 4,000. So they had actually, right after the war ended, enlisted ranks had shrunk from 4,500 to 4,000. Okay. Uh, So it never really uh, mushroomed like you would see in World War II when We saw the ranks go from 40,000 to uh, a quarter million serving in the war effort altogether of Coast Guard personnel.
0: So it never really
1: grew uh, in the same
0: amount. Switching gears then. Um, there's a horrible disaster in Halifax, Nova Scotia, on December 6th, 1917. A French freighter carrying about 5,000 tons of TNT collides with a Norwegian steamship in the harbor. A fire starts. This creates a massive explosion that ends up killing 1,600 people, mostly civilians, and it injures about 9,000 more and destroys 3,000 buildings in the harbor this is going to have an important impact on the role of the Coast Guard. Can you tell us a little bit about this?
1: Certainly. Actually, um, that did have an impact. However, uh, if you look back in history, there was actually another event that had an even greater impact on the Coast Guard, and that's called the Black Tom Island Explosion. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but it occurred uh, actually in 1916, middle of 1916. And what happened in that event, uh, there was an island in uh, New York Harbor, where they had stored um, ammunition, ordnance, um, explosives. It was called Black Tom Island. And uh, it was found that uh, German saboteurs had uh, set off a detonation there that exploded the whole uh, weapons store and, and uh, explosives that were housed there. It was uh, about a $1 billion worth of damage to New York City. Fortunately, I think only a few people were killed, um, fortunately. I say, but actually it uh, could have been a lot worse uh, than it was. is the reason why I say that. In any case, that's probably what really got uh, the Coast Guard's role in port security uh, begun was the Black Tom incident. The Halifax explosion, as horrendous as it was, with the loss of so many lives, only reinforced what the Coast Guard had already begun to do, which was to uh, institute rigorous and really draconian uh, Rules and regulations associated not just with ordinary shipping, but especially with um, any kind of military cargoes and war material that were uh, shipped out of New York City, as well as other major ports um, and uh, in the U.S. So, and that's a huge role and mission for um, the Coast Guard today. And in fact, it probably began in a very minor form before the war even began because the revenue cutter service in prior to 1915 was in charge of. Monitoring, monitoring security for anchorages and security and safety for uh, vessels, both recreational as well as um, commercial uh, in those anchorages. wasn't necessarily for uh, cargoes or explosives or anything like that, but just ensuring that these vessels were observing proper safety protocols, and this is prior to the war. So it really was a huge ramp-up of that earlier uh, role uh, in an ancestor agency prior to the official Coast Guard's founding.
0: During the war, one of the Coast Guard's primary duties is to protect the ports.
1: Right. It's prim- that's one of its primary duties. And if you look at the history, especially in New York City, it's huge. We had some famous officers in charge of port security. Um, and uh, and there's been manuscripts written about their just their biography alone. But other ports also had uh, stringent uh, port security rules and regulations set down by the uh, Coast Guard. Even Sault Ste. Marie uh, considered a very strategic location for shipping because the Great Lakes uh, had a a detail to monitor the security there as well. So it was not just New York City, but most major seaports that shipped out war material.
0: Where were the major duty stations for the Coast Guard in the United States during the war?
1: Well, that's interesting because... um, you know, the, war, the World War I was really a baptism of fire for the Coast Guard. It was the first true test of the Coast Guard as a military agency. And we talked already about how the transition took place. And in World War II, we learned a lot of lessons from World War I. And we typically tended to assign uh, complete crews to ships. Uh, so most vessels were Coast Guard manned with no Navy personnel on board. And that you know, was in the hundreds, not thousands, of vessels. But in World War One, we had mixed crews. We had Coast Guard vessels that had Navy personnel on board, and we had Navy vessels that could be under the command of a Coast Guard officer. Uh, so it was a much different kind of hybrid uh, mobilization that took place in World War I. So if you say, where were they stationed or where were these people working? Well, we had quite a few Coast Guard officers that were commanding uh, Naval air stations, but there were no Coast Guard personnel there. We also had Navy vessels that were under the command of Coast Guard officers, but they had naval personnel on board. So we had, um, several, um, cruising cutters, which are high seas vessels that, uh, were under the, were Coast Guard vessels doing escort duty in Europe. We had, uh, one Naval air station in France under the command of a Coast Guard officer. We had several in the United States, uh, air stations under the command of Coast Guard officers, but, um, As far as major concentrations, um, the the forces would have been spread out from a a float standpoint and vessels to most of the uh, uh, major seaports. New York City, of course, was a huge hub for Coast Guard operations and activities. Norfolk Hampton Roads is huge. Uh, A lot of uh, convoys would set forth from those two uh, urban areas, for example, and require the support of Coast Guard. But then um, forces were spread out. Like I said, uh, the Life Saving Service was one of the early ancestor agencies. So we had Coast Guard personnel at life saving stations all along the coast, and they would do beach patrol and uh, uh, search and rescue for freighters and vessels that were attacked or hit mines offshore. Uh, we had, for example, one. Coast Guard officer who who is um, in charge of the Chatham Air Station, the Naval Air Station there, and he participated in the first attack on a U-boat in the Western Hemisphere. Um, so it was it was a lot more dispersed and uh, not as um, strategically placed, I would say, as we see today. For example, today you have thousands and thousands of active duty personnel in the Hampton Roads area, um, as you do um, in South Florida and in the West Coast, uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, Seattle, but um, back in those, and we don't have as many boat stations by by any means as we used to uh, back in the uh, in the nineteen teens and uh, World War One. So they weren't quite as the our forces as small as they were were certainly not nowhere near as focused as they are today in certain areas.
0: Can you tell us a little more about the Coast Guard overseas during the war?
1: Sure. Um, let me state that uh, the Coast Guard and its ancestor agency, which I mentioned already, the Revenue Cutter Service, had been overseas for, um, well, decades. I'd say 70, well, even more years than that, since the 1800 early 1800s. And um, so it wasn't unusual that they'd be overseas during World War I. Um, they'd been uh, far afield, uh, Spanish-American War. They were in the Battle of Manila Bay and uh, had been uh, overseas in the Pacific for many, many years. In any case... Um, some of the overseas assignments I mentioned the uh, Coast Guard cutters used for escort duty and they were homeported out of Gibraltar uh, and they would steam between Gibraltar and escort convoys up to the uh, UK and back uh, so they do round trips and um, I also mentioned uh, Coast Guard personnel associated with uh, naval air stations overseas um, so it was primarily in uh, in European waters that the uh, Coast Guard served um, also had personnel. That were on board some of the high seas navy vessels that were used for escort duty going uh, transatlantic. So, for example, our famed uh, Coast Guard aviator Elmer Stone, who was the first one to actually fly across the Atlantic, was uh, a member of the aviation crew on board the uh, USS Huntington, I believe, is an armored cruiser with uh, aircraft attached to it for patrolling the uh, the escort. Um, escorts and convoys. So we had people placed on all the naval vessels as well, like I said. But in the Pacific, we had quite a few uh, Coast Guard cutters that were serving. Obviously, they were in Alaska, Hawaii, uh, the Philippines, and, and other areas there. So they were pretty far afield in the Pacific as well, even though there wasn't much of a, uh, uh, any sort of uh, combat taking place in that uh, theater of operations.
0: Does the Coast Guard suffer any combat losses during the war?
1: yeah there were a couple, over a couple of hundred Coast Guardsmen that were lost in the line of duty during World War one and in fact the largest uh, naval loss to the us uh, due to combat was a Coast Guard um, loss and that was the USS Tampa, which was torpedoed and sunk uh, over 110 Coast Guardsmen died uh, all hands were lost as well as some Royal Navy and Navy personnel. Um, But we also lost uh, quite a few in some of the uh, rescue efforts that took place during the war. You have to remember that the Coast Guard is embroiled in combat. That's its primary mission during the war. But strangely enough, for a very small service, you're also layering on all the different other missions that the Coast Guard is trying to carry out while it's being a a military force. So it's doing search and rescue, humanitarian response, all sorts of other missions while it's fighting at the same time. So it did quite a bit of uh, rescue uh, during the War at as well. Many uh, w- um, medals were given out, more Navy crosses were given out during World War I to Coast Guard personnel than during World War II, which is kind of strange considering how many personnel served in uh, World War II. Uh, so in any case, uh, that's, uh, that's the capacity that a lot of them uh, served in. And as far as the other combat deaths, I mentioned the sinking, but also uh, quite a few members were lost to the Spanish flu pandemic, uh, back, uh, which occurred, you're probably aware, during World War One, and in the aftermath of World War One, We probably lost about 50 to 100 service members to Spanish flu. And then you have you know, uh, two dozen others that were lost uh, either in combat or in the line of duty somehow or another uh, during the war. So to our numbers, we probably lost a greater proportion of, of people uh, yeah. due to uh, the war effort than perhaps many of the other military agencies.
0: Yeah, proportionally, it seems like the loss was high.
1: Yeah, and if you look at, for example, the other uh, ships that may have been sunk, San Diego was lost uh, in World War I due to a mine. But most of the crew got off. I think the only people that died were associated with the explosion itself. Uh, If you look at the Cyclops, uh, which is one of the great mysteries of the supposed uh, Bermuda Triangle, she went down with a couple hundred people on board, none ever seen again. But it's surmised that that uh, ship was not lost due to combat but due to natural causes or uh, accident on board. But the Tampa was lost to uh, a sinking by u boat.
0: So what is the overall legacy of World War I for the Coast Guard?
1: Well, each one of these events, major events that the Coast Guard goes through has a transformative effects on the service. Like I said before, it was a baptism of fire. It was the first true test of the Coast Guard as a military agency. It was, in my opinion, a success. Uh, it it uh, gave a lot of lessons learned to the service that it could build on for future engagements. Many of the great leaders that uh, led the service during Prohibition, as well as World War II, really got their experience from uh, serving World War One on board uh, combat vessels, um, and, uh, and Coast Guard aviation really got its start in World War One as well. So when the uh, service um, became the, the uh, law enforcement agency on the water for Prohibition. That actually changed. It was a law enforcement mission, obviously, not combat. It was the largest law enforcement mission in the service history. And I mentioned that we only had about 4,000 active duty members when we started out, but uh, that mushroomed into over 10,000 during the mm-hmm. Prohibition, as well as an incredible increase in small boats, cutters, and the permanent use of uh, aviation for Coast Guard missions took place there too these are all things that began and we got our feet wet with World War one and then of course that lesson and the lesson World War one simply made uh, our organization and uh, and um, ramp up to World War two that much easier because a lot of these leaders like uh, Russell weishi the commandant uh, of World War two learned everything you knew through World War one and prohibition so um, a lot of the lessons that uh, didn't work out in World War One were never implemented again, and one of uh, all the successes that occurred during World War one were were uh supported and emphasized for our roles in uh, World War two.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about what happened to the Coast Guard then after World War I?
1: Well, it shrank uh I mentioned that there was a a big drive amongst the officer Corps for the Coast Guard to become part of the Navy, a branch of the Navy. And that was a big battle that embroiled our leadership and uh, many of the political leaders in D.C., Washington, D.C., right after the war. Um, and uh, I would say most historians and people looking back would say it was fortunate that the Coast Guard never became a part of the Navy. Um, it's happened since then as well. and it's, it's never been successful. Um, we also, in the aftermath, as you're well aware, had the Spanish pandemic And uh, the Coast Guard, as I mentioned, suffered its own losses, but it also became a humanitarian responder for uh, populations, especially uh, indigenous peoples in Alaska, whose villages were being wiped out by the uh, by the flu. So the Coast Guard uh, took an active role in uh, responding to this crisis up in the Pacific Northwest that had kind of came from uh, the war effort was transmitted by service members from the war. Well, one of the uh, things that the Coast Guard points to a lot is is, uh, Coast Guard aviation. And uh, I'm not sure if you're very familiar with the NC-4, but I mentioned Elmer Stone, probably our most famous um, Coast Guard aviator. He's by far our most famous. And, in fact, he's a uh, graduate of Maury High School. He was the first American to fly across the Atlantic. Did not fly nonstop, but he did fly an aircraft. It was an NC-4 Navy biplane took off from the U.S., flew up to Halifax with that same biplanes. These are huge, monstrous, uh, double-winged aircraft. They look very primitive by today's standards. Three of them took flight in 1919. Their destination was London, England. Um, Only one made it. It was Elmer Stone's. He was the one that piloted across the uh, Atlantic. They had uh, destroyers set up as a picket line all the way across their flight path in case they crashed or had to land. The other two dropped out and his, uh, and, and uh, were unable to make the passage. But he, uh, he flew it all the way to the Azores, uh, Portugal, and then wound up in uh, England. So that was part of the uh, Coast Guard's aviation is in development. Um, it's aviators. I mentioned that uh, Coast Guard officers were in charge of a lot of the air stations. Um, the uh, aviation branch really didn't get a permanent start, however, until Prohibition went the aircraft were used for interdiction and uh, observation intelligence purposes. That's why it was established permanently. So a lot of things came out of the war that were very important to our history, and uh, it was a very good uh, initial effort for a brand-new military agency to learn how to fight alongside the other branches of the military.
0: All right, Well, that was very, very interesting. Thank you again for sure. taking the time to talk with us.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Mm -hmm. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.